This is a special edition of Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today we spotlight three musicians known for merging their political and social conscience with their music and for working on and off the stage for change. I'm Paul Ingalls. Later we feature two who have sadly passed away, Harry Chapin and Marvin Gaye. But first we talk with someone who's still challenging us to think about our place in the world through his music and activism, singer-songwriter Jackson Brown. You might ask what it takes to remember When you know that you've seen it before Where a government lies to a people And a country is drifting to war There's a shadow on the faces Of the men who sent the guns To the wars that are fought in places Where their business interests run Lives in the Balance from 1986 may have been Jackson Brown's most high-profile political song, taking aim at the U.S. covert war in Nicaragua, months before the Iran-Contra scandal broke to the public. But people forget that his very first hit from 15 years earlier, Dr. My Eyes, though upbeat in tone, was really about witnessing life's hardships and anxiously telling the doctor his fear that he'd learned not to cry. Fifty years after Dr. My Eyes on a 2021 album release called Downhill from Everywhere, Jackson Brown is still asking questions he wants us to ask ourselves. Every second breath you take is coming from the sea. We don't really know, because we don't really see. Do you think of the ocean as yours? I was involved in the civil rights movement from a very early age, and, and so everybody around me was. Early age when? Like when I was 14, I, you know, I belonged to CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, and a meeting, say, for that would devolve into a, simply a party, a dance, you know, and, and uh, I was in L.A., and I was, like, the first time I heard, you know, going to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. It was at a record party after, a, after what had been a sort of strategy meeting about a demonstration. or a, you know, Music has always accompanied uh, social movements. You know, there's a story I read in this book by music exec Joe Smith called Off the Record. Yeah. Your conversation in there, and I presume it's a transcription, started with the story of getting busted for pot summer after high school graduation, but because you already had some publishing money coming in from songwriting, you could pay a lawyer to talk to a judge to keep you from going to jail, but you noted that there were about 200 black and Chicano kids in court that day who, who couldn't afford the lawyer who knew the judge and were probably heading to jail. So you saw that whoever had the bread you know, it's going to be all right. Well, that's the way it felt. That absolutely, I don't know what became of any of them, but I know that their path was through that was less assured than mine, and it was striking to me. Those are the experiences that go into understanding that there's a need for change and a need for, for justice and a feeling of, 
you know, common cause with those people who carry out those struggles and those strategies. Is there any way to explain in maybe your household, your upbringing, your parents, uh, or is it something just innate, do you think, that drove your consciousness? Well, I was raised in the household. We were more or less colorblind, and I say more or less because at a certain point, my parents had to tell me what prejudice is and how that I would encounter it. The music that my parents listened to, my dad, especially all the deities in our household were were jazz musicians, were, were black, you know, were Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong, and but not all of them, of course. And but at one point, you know, in part of their instruction to us was, hey, look, you're gonna you're gonna encounter this, you know. There's this thing called prejudice, and people really believe that you're gonna see it, you're gonna you're gonna run into it, you know. Here's one way it played out, you know, like uh, uh, we were having a discussion about civil rights in a classroom when I was probably about 14 or 15. And I was espousing my, you know, belief in racial equality. And this other kid, my, my contemporary, said, oh, that's all good and fine, but come on, like, admit it. You know, like, if we, it would be, it would, you would feel differently if it was your sister and whether your sister was, you know, going with a black guy. And I was going, <laughs> I said, well, as a matter of fact, my sister does date a black guy. And he not only did not believe me, but he just thought it was un, it was the lowest of low, you know, strategies to say that. Like, did I have no pride or some, something, that kind of thing. I just felt so bad for him. I thought, well, you know, so, so you, don't, you don't believe me, but my sister was dating this great musician named Joe Gilbert. And was, he was a, a musician we all were crazy about from this this duo called Joe and Eddie and they played locally and played these clubs and stuff and I thought what is the big deal don't you don't the problem is that you don't know any black people you've never hung with any black people you don't haven't met them and you haven't met them on common ground and you haven't experienced anything to them they're they're permanently over there separate from you and I saw that that's that's the problem is that people don't they don't have those experiences that illustrate to them their common humanity. We had, you know, a, 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 an institutionalized racism that was, you know, based in the, the money structures of our society that, that was operating at full speed. The armed forces has only been desegregated like 10 years before, right? In the 40s. I mean, there's a lot that we have not encountered as history that is our most recent history. You know, it's just we have an, an amnesia that comes along with American culture that comes along with our everyday life. There's this like what happened last week is not really remembered. I'm wondering, though, as you enter the entertainment segment, for real in the late 60s, early 70s, cutting your first album. I'm wondering if the activism spark might have been lit a little bit by just seeing John Lennon and Yoko Ono in the late 60s or George Harrison's concert for Bangladesh. Certainly, yeah. And Dylan. Well, Bob Dylan was majorly involved in the civil rights movement and wrote songs on the subject, you know, like... uh, only upon their game, or the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll. I mean, there he was very involved and wrote songs and on the, in the subjects that that were that accompanied the civil rights uh, 
era, I'll call it the civil rights era, because that movement continued and the movement has had to continue. But also, Buffy St. Marie wrote songs. Universal Soldier, yeah. Universal Soldier, and also, you know, a lot of songs about um, Native American rights. And that, somehow, like in the civil rights era, you were mostly talking about equal rights for African Americans in our country, and we weren't even talking about Indians, but she was. And she's a fantastic writer. And and in the case of all this music, the songs about love and relationships accompanied these the themes that we're all encountering on a you know, in social themes. You know, Billie Holiday had sung Strange Fruit. All, all along the way there are these songs that find their way through the they, that somehow make it into the popular culture without being, you know, completely censored or taken out. And what, like, what's what's going on, too, was like a really... Marvin Gaye, right. ...an incredible moment in the 60s. And, and, and then the, the John Lennon did these concerts for Attica and, and vocally opposed the, the Vietnam War. And John Lennon is a great example because there they were, the Beatles, they were the, they were the most popular band and the planet and they had all this influence and they were adored by the media and at the same time they were willing to bring up these issues as they encountered them. Yeah. John in particular, but George also. To bring up these issues was not a small thing. No, totally bucking the threat of backlash to speak their truth, which That's is, right. is to me the link that I'm trying to make to what I've seen you do, uh, Harry Chapin do, speaking publicly when you're not on stage singing a song. Well, there had been a bit of a back- backlash to activism. For a while, it seemed like that was, it was like no longer fashionable or no longer cool or somehow no longer appreciated or something. We, we did, or, you know, just the general feeling that politics was bullshit and don't bring it up, you know, we don't have that. For, like, just for a short time in the 70s. But those people who comprise those movements have you know long lives and it's really the same people that are part of the civil rights movement that are part of the the movement to end the war and who become part of the environmental movement and who really make up the whole democratic activity of our country where you it is it's your right but it's part of your responsibility as a citizen to speak and to to weigh in and to and i mean i've very often thought i said god isn't it enough that i vote no, that I do. I have to really also like just give all my money to everybody that thinks the same way I think and is willing to do this activism. Now the question is like whether or not even any of these. The question is how many of these people that appeal to me on a, in an email are connected with. Uh, very often they they just simply are raising money talking about who we oppose, who we and, and have we enemies that we have in common. But I want to know what they do. What are you what are you really gonna do with my twenty bucks or my hundred bucks? I don't want to impose a um, interpretation on you too much, but it's very easy for me to see your writing, your recording, your touring, your activism, charitable work through a peacemaking mission lens. And I'm just wondering if that resonates with you as a way of seeing it, feeling it as you're doing it. I see that there are so many people that are much more committed in in terms of their time, their constant time, than I am. And I feel a responsibility if I if I'm able to put something in words into a song or figure out a way of talking about something that is that might 
<laughs> might succeed than I than I do, but it's really up to me. I don't have. I don't think I have that much at stake. I think I'm. I've got the best job you can imagine. That my job is to talk about life. My job is to relate what I encounter, and that my willingness to talk about social issues, just to give it a handle, uh, you know, has been alternately it's described by some as like the the reason I'm not more popular or like I mean some people in the business say like well oh no you can't oh that's really why he doesn't have a larger audience is because he's you know talking about political stuff I don't look at it that way at all even those people who maybe have been worried by my embracing political ideas and my songs in the in the beginning now see them as a necessary part of life and it's not it's just not the whole picture at all it's a part of it. It's an essential part of it. But for an activist, they have responsibility to the people and to the issue and to the people that have aligned uh, aligned with them on a cause that far outstrips mine. I think if I can help, I will. You know, I try. Yeah. Uh, and it goes for, it goes from the, from uh, human rights issues to the environment, which of course the environment is a human rights issue now, and you see that it is really also um, environmental justice. You know. There's a reason, all these, now we have phrases like frontline communities or fence line communities, the people who have to live adjacent to an oil well or something. You know, these, you realize that the, that the people who profit from these industries don't live in the neighborhoods that are impacted most, uh, most immediately, but they certainly do live in a planet that will be ultimately impacted and their children will live in a planet that, that is affected by their activities. And so... Uh, it's about it's about information, really. I've been watching this. It was the music documentary that you contributed to. You were interviewed for. It was someone else in the documentary, I think, who said, you have to have what one might call a healthy dose of narcissism to be an honest songwriter, to be curious <laughs> enough to look inside or at yourself uh, to start a truth-telling line to a song. Yeah. But anyway, that willingness to, to do that discovery is sort of like the put your own mask on first before you help someone else on the plane. Right. And so I see anybody who does that kind of work starting with that granular work of peacemaking, trying to get what you're at, yeah. and then writing about your experience of, of dealing with that. And it feels like you've done all of that, and that's what I'm grateful for, and that's why I think of you as a peacemaker and why I wanted to land you on this program. Yeah, thank you. I, th I, I think that, I think what you say is true, that you have to kind of be able to engage and implement these, these ideas in your own life in order to speak with any, any kind of honesty or truth. In the end, you know, this is what Albert Schweitzer said, like, in the, personal example is not one of the ways you can influence people. It's the only way. So in that spirit, by, ex by offering a story of your, your own experience, you have to accept the idea that it has some value and that it might be interesting to somebody else. And that's, that's, but, but really where you're headed with, with it is like what it means to everybody or what it matters to, what, what it might matter to another person. I think that the question about what do you think peace would look like? What would a peaceful world look like? Is a good is a good starting point. 
because I think that it's not just an absence of war. It's also the presence of justice. We grew up thinking the difference between, you know, the opposite with the peace was the opposite of war. <clears throat> but we've, we've had very few periods of time in the history of our country that our country was not at war. Some of those things can be disputed as to whether we were really at war or whether we were just simply, you know, supporting a foreign war that was in our interest, you know. I mean, there are lots of, it's a worthy of debate. Uh, but it's, it's the majority. The majority of our years are, are we're at war somewhere. With, and very often without knowing it, the majority of our people even knowing it. So you have to ask yourself what it would look like, what peace would look like. And same thing about justice. You know, if we're barricaded in our privilege, we might miss the fact that that privilege is part of an, an injustice and part of an unequal distribution of the wealth, part of an unequal application of justice in the country. Well, we ignore Laszlo's pyramid of needs at our own peril. And, you know, when talking about what peace looks like, what we've explored on our program is that attention to that is paramount yeah. to a definition of peace. And the one time I got to interview Jimmy Carter, he said the same thing. He said, you know, these countries are pushed desperation it's in lives in the balance you know something that'll make them pick up a brick or a rock or a stone right so that's part of the formula that seems to evade too many politicians or citizens you know why should i care kind of thinking about you know what's going on in iraq or whatever I showed up at rallies and played places publicly in support of ideas long before I had any songs to sing on the subject. You know, it's just, it's just eventually I was able to, to find a way of speaking about these things in a song. And when I did, I thought, oh, really? God, I, I look at something the next day and go, yeah. oh, am I really going to talk about this? But it was what I was reading about. It was what I was thinking about. And it was what it was about the, the the ideas that I was encountering in my life, and so there's no there's no way not to have that enter into your your songwriting. Otherwise, you're 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 like the some arcane practitioner of an art that is like no longer connected with your present day life. Well, of course, Bruce has talked about you know having the conversation or continuing the conversation, and to me, in conversation, it's always driven, particularly if you're feeling like you're making an intimate connection is that you're experiencing something and you can't wait to tell that person, check this out, or, you know, let me bounce this off you, or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Recently, like on an album or so ago, I had a song called um, Which Side? I think I wound up calling it Which Side Are You On? But I had that it was in different forms for a while. I really resisted going all the way into describing the two sides. And I thought, eventually I thought, you know, you're going to have to do it. <laughs> this side, this side, or this side. I'm going to have to do that. And it became a part of the song. And I've, I thought, the only way to really pull this off is to talk to people the way you would talk to them if you were in a bar, having a drink with them. 
where it's okay to disagree. It really is. If you're with your friends and you have a difference of opinion, you're having a drink together, it should not come to, should not come to blows. It should, they, the, the, the common, your common interest should be enough to like, you know, not that people don't fight in bars, but I mean, generally, like if you're there uh, <laughs> talking about stuff, you're entitled to rant. You got you got you have an opinion. You should be able to f- express it. And I think that's what that unabashed, you know, that that that's the strength of your opinion should speak for itself. You know, make your argument, right. make your argument. Right. Don't hold back. It's not like there's nothing sanct about the idea that you're like a a recording artist or that you were giving, you know, like for so many years you'd be told, oh, but by people who didn't agree with you or didn't want you to, you know, oh, you know, you're misusing your privilege or you're misusing your position or you're like, you shouldn't take up our airwaves with your personal opinion. And in the words of little Stephen, when they, when they discussed like your personal songs are better than your political songs. And he would say, what's more personal than your political opinion? I'm not going to ask you to tell our listeners how to be in a pursuit of truth and peace. But when you are more living your daily life and not the well-known music figure life, what are elements of the formula that are working for you to be a peacemaker in your daily life that might give people ideas about, yeah, I can do this? Well, to be to be willing to listen or to be hearing people and listening and, 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 and try to try to get outside of your own privilege and to, to see people put yourself in their position and try to, you know, we're losing fellow citizens at a very, very steady rate to, to poverty and, and uh, the inequality of opportunity. And, you know, where the country's in a really pivotal place pivotal place you can't pass laws or 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 pass legislation that dictates people's awareness or willingness to be empathetic you know i mean we have deep problems in this country there's a divide here uh well again that sounds like the attention to laszlo's pyramid of needs yeah i came for inspiration i came looking for grace found my reflection in every passing face and everyone who gathered standing on that shore searching the horizon had no word exactly a bit of A Little Soon to Say, again from Jackson Brown's Downhill from Everywhere 2021 release. Hear my complete nearly hour-long visit with Jackson at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, and look for our June 2021 episode. Later on this musician's special, the story of Harry Chapin's philanthropy. But after a short break, Marvin Gaye's landmark album that woke a lot of people up in 1971, What's Going On? Just a little soon to say
too many of you this is a Peace Talks radio special, and I'm Paul Ingalls. Part of an occasional series spotlighting musicians who infused their songs and performances with calls for peace and social justice. We'll do more as time goes on. But today, we heard from Jackson Brown, and later we'll hear about the late singer-songwriter Harry Chapin's devotion to philanthropy. And right now, we spotlight this moment in 1971 when Marvin Gaye redefined what a Motown hit could be with first his one-of-a-kind single, What's Going On?, followed by the landmark album of the same name. Well, you know where to find the whole song in an instant, of course. What we can bring you only here are two music scholars to give us the context and background on Marvin's groundbreaking release. In a moment, University of South Carolina Associate Professor of Ethnomusicology and African American Studies, Brigitte Johnson, and first, Hannah Grantham, Chief Curator at Detroit's Motown Museum. So before jumping into what immediately impacted him as he came into the creation of what's going on, I want to take a step back real quickly just to paint the picture of Marvin's life growing up was a very unstable time in this nation, in this world. But in particular, I think he struggled as a black man to figure out how do I behave? How do I act like a responsible adult in this crumbling society that I'm seeing? During his late teens to adulthood, to the time in his early 30s when he produced what's, go- what's Going On, he had witnessed countless attacks, countless riots, you know, year after year of unrest and turmoil, protests, outright violence through wars, imperialism. He's seeing all of this compound. Definitely. When we look back in the 60s, right before what's going on is happening, there is a context of just another explosion of a genre we now call soul. Soul music is popping out and soul is, you know, not really uh, as sonically distinctive from some of the other things that were happening, but it starts to become distilled. It's almost like a a more core aesthetic black sound. People are digging deeper into the blues sound, deeper into the gospel sounds and bringing them into like secular type of realms for, you know, another kind of rhythm and blues that's now more ethnically conscious of the black experience. And so when we think about Sam Cooke coming out of A Chain's Gonna Come, and he also is being influenced by what's happening in the folk realm where you have Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind is touching people. When you think about Bob Dylan putting out Blowing in the Wind and Sam Cooke singing, I want to write something like that. It's speaking to our times. You have, I remember uh, uh, Mavis Staples talking about when she heard Blowing in the Wind for the first time. It's like, well, this is a white man speaking to what's going on in a particular way. We need to be doing this as well. You see Aretha Franklin, same thing, where she's basically giving, once again, as, as the queen of soul, like a, a, a legit, legitimate queen of soul, talking about and speaking from what's going on in the African-American community, in African-American relationships between men and women, as well as the, the broader context of the world, you see soul music kind of taking off as an identity. You have James Brown here, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. All these Black artists specifically identifying outwardly as Black artists. You have the Black awareness movement, people wearing afros, and this idea of as opposed to trying to assimilate into mainstream society, society and going into blending in, you have more people saying, well, 
we shouldn't be bling in. We should be ourselves. Black is beautiful. So you have all these things happening. And so um, you think about how the Vietnam War starts to impact the Black community, specifically because of the draft. You have so many African-American men from communities been taken into this war and many not coming back or many coming back with drug problems or many coming back with mental problems. And so this is another layer of when you think about um, prior to this in the previous war, World War II, African-Americans saw that as a, a chance to maybe have a double victory. If, if people prove their patriotism in World War II and have this kind of double V victory, we can you know, fight segregation and Jim Crow on one hand and prove that we are great Americans on the other hand. And of course, post-World War II, that didn't happen. So we see the rise of the civil rights movement. But then we get into the 1960s, where as the civil rights movement is beginning, we're seeing people are saying, well, I want this movement, I want this freedom, I want this liberation on my terms, not making myself into something else that white society may think respectable or, or, you know, pleasing or comfortable. And then you see people like Marvin Gaye also looking at this and saying, what is this going to sound like? Who's going to be our voice in these types of, you know, these types of songs and conversations? And so you see him um, definitely taking that um, that same wave of, of a type of protest where it speaks to these issues, speaks to, in some cases, the spirituality of the Black community, as you see on, on, the, on the almost very end of what's going on, where you're questioning things, even what you've been taught as far as religion and spirituality, where is God in all this? You start seeing him doing that stuff where most often not people wouldn't do that in public. And so you see him exploring these aspects of the Black experience, even through this kind of underlying um, look at the world. Because of course, what's going on covers ecology, covers war, it covers how man treats man. But at the same time, the core question is how how America is teaching black people, you know, and so it has this universal appeal, but at the same time, very specific can be drawn to a black experience where you get to the 1960s, 100 years removed from the Emancipation Proclamation and people still are trying to fight for humanity. And so you see that as a flowering in this album, just as you see it in other albums that were coming out by a lot of African-American artists, particularly ones who are aligning themselves with the soul aesthetic. In addition to those external issues, he also had some personal struggles. Um, He's always had personal struggles. Mental health is a thing that many of us struggle with, and he wasn't exempt from those struggles. Um, But I think that they all kind of come to a head at the turn of the decade in the 1970s as we see this civil rights movement come to somewhat of an end, but also a huge question mark because there really aren't any clear movement forward and you see so many of the leaders killed so when he comes into 1971 when the album was released within the last decade you had lost uh, civil rights leaders like Malcolm X like Martin Luther King Jr. like Fred Hamilton who was a leader of the Black Panther Party in Chicago you saw um, presidential candidates assassinated on the campaign trail and those are just you know the noteworthy names those don't account for all the smaller people that he encountered in his day-to-day life who were no longer with him, which also included his singing partners like Tammy Terrell, who had died um, in 1970. So I think a lot of that kind of despair was on his mind as he comes into this, but also he's a human. He's still trying to make his way out of what it seems like no way. Um, And I think he found that through this album. That's Motown Museum curator Hannah Grantham. And again, here, University of South Carolina professor Brigitte Johnson. Creatively speaking, as we see in the 60s, some of the top artists are now thinking about, you know, 
do I need to stay with Motown? I want to have more control over my music. I want to write the songs. I'm a songwriter. I want to write the songs that I want to write, how I want to write them. I want to produce my songs. And so you have a, a type of um, creative power struggle already happening around Motown, but definitely with top artists like Marvin Gaye. And of course, you have the, the Vietnam War is happening where his brother is coming back and you have, you know, vets coming back, particularly African-American veterans coming back and talking about what was going on in the war and the horrors of war. And, and now what we call PTSD is emergent in a lot of people. And so he's kind of thinking about um, writing about this and, and, and trying to do this. But of course, you know, you're at Motown and they're about hits and, and pop tunes and dance tunes and not really getting into message music as much and really not dealing with outwardly protest type music. Hannah Grantham, can you relate the story of Obi from the Four Tops collaborating with Marvin musically on what's going on? Yeah, so actually, Obi Benson was the one that came up with the first lyrics to What's Going On. He had witnessed what's called Bloody Thursday, which was in Berkeley, California. So he saw anti-Vietnam protesters attacked by a police unit in Berkeley, California, while he was on tour with the Four Tops. Um, And he, you know, jotted down some words that struck him in the moment, um, decided that the song was not the right fit for the Four Tops. But he came back to Detroit. Marvin was in this stage where he was trying to look for something next. The next message that he could produce, he definitely wanted his music to have this significance that he felt was more relevant to the community. Um, And so he took Obi's words and figured out a way to put it within his own style and his own perspective um, and worked with Obi Benson among a few other Motown staff and creative members and created that song. He's taking some of these conversations and, and looking at the world and asking these broader questions, but not just doing that lyrically, but also how to do that sonically. You hear this kind of wonderful saxophone solo. You have congas in the background. You have this, you know, vocal background, this singing ahs and oohs in the background. And you have, um, you know, almost a doubling of his lead vocals, this echo effect. And it kind of sets you up for the whole album. And even the groove that's set down, the groove that's set down and what's going on continues on in various variations for like the first six tracks, right? So it's all like, like almost like the, it sets you up for the master groove of the album. And so when I... Um, if I played this for a class, I literally would say, how many parts can you name? There's so much going on here, but it doesn't sound cluttered. It sounds very calm, very almost like air. And But you have so much happening. If you just write down and list what's in this track, it's very, very dense. But it sounds like just walking outside, like on a busy street. And you have these strings flying on the top. And you have, you know, wonderful bass line at the bottom. And it just sets you, sets you up for the whole album. Well, and I love that uh, image, and I also think about real powerful technique in so-called protest music, and Dylan used it over and over and over again, is even blowing the wind. It's like, it's all questions, right? How many times must a man walk down? Is to put it in the form of a question. It's a little less aggressive than a statement. I was thinking about the tone of it compared to something that was just as important or effective like Edwin Starr's War, What Is It Good For? Absolutely nothing. You know, it's just the the tone in that is different. It's effective in a different way. And it, and, get, and I think about the second track, it's even more personal. What's happening, brother? You know, and so it's more of the same concept of bringing the conversation deeper and deeper as you get into the album. 
you may move away from some of the questions and get into now reflections. Can't find no work, can't find no job, my friend. Money is tighter than it's ever been. Say, man, I just don't understand what's going on across this land. Oh, what's happening, brother? Yeah. yeah, the other thing that I'm thinking about is that um, even to this day, even to the George Floyd trial, there was all this business about trying to label, identify anger, right? When I think about inner city blues, is that you go through this whole orchestrated litany of the state of the world. And then at the end, there's this very elegant, but honest, somewhat restrained expression of the emotion that it should all be leading up to. And he could have done that vocal like Edwin Starr if he wanted to. But, you know, it's really makes me want to holler, throw up both my hands, you know. But what's going to happen to me if I do holler? The um, emotion and empathy that that particular track stirs up for uh, someone who's listening carefully. When we, yes, when we think about makes me want to holler, of course, Inner City Blues is the title, but we know it's makes me want to holler. We think about what's happening now in current day cases with, you know, George Floyd, Brand Taylor, and what he says. I don't want to say it's prophetic because it, this has been going on for a long time. So he didn't really predict anything that was already happening um, in his time and it's still happening in our time. So when he says it makes me want to, the way they do in my life. And so there's two things happening in that one quick line that you feel a particular way, you feel a particular anger, a frustration and an outrage. But you're also acknowledging how that is being surveilled. That is being, um, it's being surveilled, it's being watched, it's being policed. And so the way they do my life. And so we, we, we are raised to thinking you're your own person, you have your own life, you control your destiny. But when you say the way they do my life, you're acknowledging that in this particular social construct, someone else has control to the point where you can't really express your anger in a particular way because the way they do my life, the way it could be perceived or, or thought about or if someone's going to have a reaction to it, or it can actually end your life. And so this idea that it resonates even till the day, it's because of that sentiment. We have people who are immediately asked to channel or to clamp down on their anger when they've been horribly abused. And so you see the society having a particular relationship with the anger of the oppressed when they are duly, rightfully do that anger, that frustration. And in this particular song, he captures that kind of that prison where you, you can't have that full range of your humanity and your emotions around being oppressed and how they do your life. So it makes you want to holler, you know. And so we are now living in a time where people are getting beyond that unction and saying, well, whatever, I, I cannot live in this particular um, situation where even my anger to my oppression, even my speaking out is being now turned into a criminal act. I think that's definitely a big part of how this song and this album becomes almost eternal because we're still in the same situations. We're still facing the same kind of oppressions and even the stifling of speaking out of those against those oppressions are still among us, unfortunately. 
music scholar from the University of South Carolina there, Brigitte Johnson. Earlier, Hannah Grantham, curator at the Motown Museum, Hitsville itself, in Detroit, Michigan. I talked with each of them for about an hour about Marvin Gaye's entire career. You can hear those chats at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Go to the June 2021 episode and click on either one's picture for the bonus stuff. Short break here, then back to remember the music and philanthropy of Harry Chapin. Everybody thinks we're wrong. Who are they to judge us? Mother, mother, simply calls me where I have all mother, mother. It was raining hard in Frisco. I needed one more fare to make my night. A lady up ahead waved to flag me down. She got in at the light. Well, many of you know the rest of that story, and those of you who don't should look up Taxi by Harry Chapin where you get your music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Our Peace Talks Radio special has heard from Jackson Brown already and about Marvin Gaye, and our third musician activist to discuss is Harry Chapin, known for 10 years of great story songs from 1972's Taxi, Cats in the Cradle, W-O-L-D, I Want to Learn a Love Song, and many, many more, and many deeper album cuts, too, that explored loneliness, hard luck stories, poverty, protest, and society's divisions. And although Harry was famous for doing loads of benefit shows, he worked hard for good causes off stage all of his life, which was cut short. He was 38 years old when his car was crushed in a road accident on his way to another benefit concert, July 16, 1981. A 2020 documentary called Harry Chapin, When in Doubt, Do Something, tells his story. And I got together on a Zoom call the film's director, Rick Korn, also Harry's partner in hunger prevention, Bill Ayers. He and Harry founded Why Hunger, still a working nonprofit decades later today. And in a moment, we'll hear Jason Chapin, one of Harry's adopted kids. All after this clip from the film, which includes some comments by public interest advocate and former radio host Mark J. Green. My mother always told me it'd be like this. <laughs> to regard Harry as merely a singer-composer, which he was, is like considering Babe Ruth a pitcher, which he was. Both were that, but far more than that. Harry, quite simply, was the leading citizen artist of his generation. So many of his songs are really about um, people who are not, you know, having uh, the time of their life. These are people who are struggling on a daily basis. And so he he's able to channel that because he had a lot of his own struggles and he brings them to life and helps them understand through his songs that, you know, we all struggle, but uh, we can get through these struggles and that there's a lot to appreciate them by. You know, this is the most divided time in my lifetime, uh, and our country is one country. And, you know, I think my father's message was always, let's find ways to bring people together. Yes. Let's find ways to understand what we have in common. And I think he would have been jumping up and down saying, we can't be fighting against ourselves. We can't be at war with ourselves. We have to be part of one community, a part of one country, and help realize our full potential. And so it just, it just tells me that what we're going through now 
is not going to work. We can't end up with you know, a divided country trying to achieve two different objectives. We have to realize that if we work together, we're helping each other and we're helping to realize our ultimate destiny, which is you know, fulfilling our potential. Right. That's Jason Chapin. He's uh, Harry Stepp's son and uh, one of the co-producers of the documentary, Harry Chapin, When in Doubt, Do Something, came out in 2020. And Rick Korn, the director of the film, is with us, as well as Bill Ayers, Harry's great friend and uh, uh, co-conspirator in trying to stop world hunger and address social issues. Uh, there is the social activist side of Harry Chapin, which we started to talk about. Um, I would say only a small percentage of all the people who know his great songs like Taxi or Cats in the Cradle even know about it. Who can tell us a little bit more about the earliest seeds for Harry's uh, determined social justice efforts? Uh, Bill, is that something you could speak to, do you think? Well, I think part of it came from his family. And, uh, you know, even though it was a family of famous people. They weren't rich. And so uh, he said that there were times when there wasn't much there. So he experienced a kind of poverty. The other thing, of course, is that he uh, recognized uh, well before he met me that there was tremendous injustice in the world. And uh, one of the people that I think was very, very influential on his whole development as a social activist was his his brother, Jim. Now, unfortunately, you know, Jim died many years ago, but I have to tell you, Jim was a genius, absolute genius. He was his older brother and he was very much involved in uh, democratic socialism. Uh, and he ha had a big effect on Harry. Uh, Bill, before I forget, when and how did you meet Harry Chapin for the first time? I met Harry because um, his brother, Tom, was on my show. I was starting a show called On This Rock. It was a network radio show for the ABC radio network. It was all over the country. So Tom came on. At the end of it, he said, boy, that was really good. He said, you should talk to my brother. He loves to talk. And that was, of course, an understatement. He did love to talk. So anyway, I, you know, I called up uh, Harry and we got together and we, we did several shows together. And then I had some crazy ideas. One of them was to do something that I called a hunger-thon. He thought that was a great idea. And we've done those. And without the hunger thons, why hunger would not have existed in the way that it did. We've just raised millions and millions of dollars. And uh, Harry thought that was a great idea. And we did the first one in New York City on WNEW. And then we did them all over the country. We did in uh, San Francisco, a couple and uh, Philadelphia and uh, Detroit, all over the place. That's how we got started. And we've reached tens of millions of people with the hunger thons and continue to do it. After Harry died, uh, the guy who was my boss at uh, WPLJ said, I want you to meet with some of the other general managers. And I did. And you know, I talked to them and I didn't think anything was going to happen. But one of them came up to me afterwards and he said, I want to do the do the hungathons again. Let's do them live at the United Nations. And uh, we did a live concert with uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash there. We, we did all kinds of things that Harry would have loved. He would absolutely have loved that. Harry would do anything to get the job done. Bill Ayers, who with Harry helped create Why Hunger, the still going nonprofit trying to end poverty and hunger by connecting people in need with good food sources. Now, Bill Ayers, at some point, Harry goes all in on charity concert efforts, saying at some point in the film that out of maybe 250 concert dates that he'd play in a given year, 100 
or for some charitable cause. This film really shows Harry's active commitment to making his music work for good causes in the mid-1970s, doesn't it, Bill Ayers? Oh, absolutely, but there's a key person in here, and that's Ken Cragen. Ken was Harry's manager, and he's the one who put together We Are the World and uh, you know, created USA for Africa and then Hands Across America. And uh, Ken is still a good friend of ours now, uh, but he, he picked up the ball from Harry and made it all happen in ways that Harry would have been thrilled about. Great. Hey, Jason and Rick, do uh, you have any thoughts about this sort of role that uh, Harry Chapin seemed to play to me? I might be forgetting some things, but it seems like he was a real bridge builder. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's important to recognize some other people who are part of this. And my mother was also the one who was having all these conversations that led to other conversations and meetings. And she and, and Bill and my father uh, often met together and tried to strategize on different things. And, and they brainstormed and came up with some great ideas. And Ken Cragen is a critical link. It's also interesting that Ken Cragen also managed Kenny Rogers. And Kenny Rogers was incredibly supportive. Uh, while my father was alive, they did a couple of benefit concerts together. And he was also there after my father died to help Why Hunger continue on and also to help establish the Harry Chapin Foundation. And my father may have been, and my mother likes to call him the Pied Piper, likes to call him the, the convener or the connector, but there were other people who were willing to listen and were also willing to do something. They wanted to also help out. They wanted to get involved. And it's that collective effort that really makes it special because one person can do an incredible amount. But when you can get other people to join forces with you, so much more is possible. So much more gets done. There's an interesting part in the film um, that kind of sums up your question. Uh, we used a lot of the radio shows that Bill referenced before, the on, on the rock radio shows. I think we had 30 or 40 of them. Uh, and he uh, actually, uh, in these tapes, was concerned about the direction of music and that, you know, the seventies became a very kind of this greedy type of industry. And he was worried about what would happen at, in the eighties and what would happen after that. And that, you know, after Crosby, Stills and Nash and Dylan and, you know, Pete Seeger and all these incredible people uh, who used their fame uh, to do good. Uh, and he was really concerned about that. And there is one exception though. And he mentions Bruce Springsteen. Um, and, and Bill, I guess, Bill, you had just interviewed Bruce, right? He became a good friend and supporter of Why Hunger, and he's still doing it. He's done concerts for us. He's done all kinds of things. And uh, Harry tried to get him to do more, of course. He was always trying to get him to do more. And uh, Bruce talks about that it kind of uh, funny. So he's been a great partner for us. Right. And, and Rick, did you want to continue? Harry was really concerned, especially towards after uh, Carter uh, loses to Reagan and he kind of sees the writing on the wall. And it seems to me that Harry after Reagan won, it seemed like he kind of doubled up on everything to make up for the, the loss. Sure, because remember, we had just finished with the Presidential Hunger Commission and Harry was, Harry was at every meeting. I think he was the only one who was at every meeting. And we, we got a very good uh, a very good report coming out of that to uh, work on hunger and poverty all over the world. And so we thought, you know, with Carter, when in the second term of Carter, 
that this would be a big deal and Harry would be a major player in it. So he and I sat after, after the elections and we sat and said to ourselves, this is awful. You know, we could see that the, the presidential hunger commission's report was gonna go nowhere, that Reagan wasn't gonna be interested in it. So we started figuring out what could we do to make things happen in this new world of 1981. The really uh, amazing thing uh, about Harry is his ability to bring conservative Republicans together with you know, liberals and make it work. Uh, and you see that in the film, you see him with uh, Senator Bob Dole. I hear him, Bob Dole, you know, those are rare things these, these days. Yeah. Jason, I think you mentioned earlier, how old were you when your father died in the car accident? 17. 17. Okay. I know it's hard to be asked about it, but what do you recall about those days of dealing with that news and the loss at that time? Well, obviously, the immediate family, it was, a, it was a devastating loss, but he was also very involved with the whole extended family. So whenever we got together for Thanksgiving or Christmas or some of the other big family events, I think there was just a, a collective loss. And, and that was really a big hole that was very hard to fill. But at the same time, what I look back at and appreciate so much is it wasn't as though everybody said, well, we're not going to do anything about this. I think everybody tried to figure out what role they could play in order to keep his legacy going and what things that they wanted to do individually that they thought were worthwhile. So, you know, to, to have why hunger not only uh, continue to survive, but also grow and become a much more dynamic organization because of so many family members and friends and others getting behind it and starting the Long Island Cares Food Bank in 1981 and to see that um, in 1980 and to see that organization grow in so many ways. And, and also my father was very involved in other uh, cultural um, institutions on Long Island, a performing arts center. He was involved with uh, the Long Island Philharmonic and the Ekleski Ballet and uh, community arts program. And, and they all continued on that they didn't all survive, but just to know that he helped to get things going and helped to get them to the next level, but that they continued on without him. Um, just is, it, I think, a tribute to him and what he um, was able to get other people to support and uh, so the important lesson for me is that, again, you know, a lot of times it takes one person to get something started, but it takes a, a whole hell of a lot of other people to keep it going and to help it grow to, uh, you know, levels that were unimaginable when it was first started. So I just look to him and I always think of him as somebody who was instrumental in so many ways, but he, he was able to convince other people to get involved and to do something and so that's, that's what's made so many things that he started continue. You know, another song that I'm very close to is uh, What Made America Famous, which was really my, my father's commentary on what makes this country what it is. And it's when individuals care enough in order to do something that maybe goes against what everyone else is doing. It's just so important to them about uh, their being. And so it's about a little town that we lived in a few years and uh, a public housing project that uh, burned to the ground and there was a slow response or alleged slow response by the uh, fire department. And my father's talking about, you know, how we need people to step up and take care of those who aren't getting uh, the, the help that they need. And when the plumber yelled, come on, let's go. They saw what was burning and said, take it slow. Let them sweat a little, they'll never know. And 
besides, we just cleaned the chrome. Said the plumber, then I'm going alone. Well, he rolled on up in the fire truck and raised the ladder to the ledge. Well, me and my girl and a couple of kids were clinging like bats to the edge. Well, thank God to salvation. Look so sweet. I shook his hand in the scene that made America famous, and I smiled from the heart that made America great. We spent the rest of that night in the home of this man that we'd never known before. It's funny when you get that close. It's kinda hard to hate. I went to sleep with the hope that made America famous. I had the kind of a dream that maybe they're still trying to teach in school of the America that made America famous, and of the people who just might understand that half together, yes we can create a country better than the one we have made of this land. We have the choice. To make each man who dares to dream, reaching out his hand, a prophet or just a crazy damn dreamer of a fool. Yes, a crazy fool. And something's burning somewhere. Does anybody care? Is anybody there? The song What Made America Famous by Harry Chapin. Thanks to Jason Chapin, Bill Ayers, and Rick Korn talking about their 2020 film, Harry Chapin, When in Doubt, Do Something. You can hear more from them, a full hour from all of them, at peacetalksradio.com, peacetalksradio.com. Just look for the June 2021 episode for that, plus more on Marvin Gaye and our longer conversation with Jackson Brown. Peacetalksradio.com is where to go to hear all the shows in our series going back to 2002, where to find out how to support our nonprofit work. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.